Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. So for today's episode, we're going to switch it up a bit and play you a panel presentation from last year's Consumer Marketing Forum. Forrester's Michael Facemeyer interviews a panel of his peers on the future of marketing. Let's take a listen. I want to bring out three incredibly smart people that I am so, so fortunate to work with. My friends, Charvan Boskirk, James McQuivy, and Fatima Kadablu. I want to kick it off. I'd mentioned that, that what we build and the components that we build are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And this gives us an opportunity, if these things are kind of combined onto websites or mobile devices, or even in a future where the mobile device is gone, and we have things embedded in us or overlays on our optics or things like that, does that change what we do? Does it give us an opportunity to be more personalized? How does that change how we market in the future? And I'll start with Shar. Well, I actually think that uh, certainly the addition of all these things allow for improved personal personalization. Um, I also think that the the it, it creates too much clutter and too much um, complexity for the user. So I actually see an inverse of there's more stuff and more places where you can have really personal interactions with your customer to a smoothing out of the experiences. So the marketer plays this role, which is um, the filter of all the stuff that could be into just the things that you need. So you think a little bit about um, why is it that in a world where you have so much choice, there's really only one search engine? You know, it's sort of like we have all these things, but we actually kind of crave a, a, a simpler set of experiences, a simpler life. So I expect that marketers will um, experiment with all these pieces and figure out which pieces they need, but then play the role of smoothing out those experiences, right. limiting the friction, giving people a way to um, not have to consciously make the choice of do I do this or do this or do this or pay attention to that and just have this um, concierge-like experience that just is a smooth representation of the brand yep. and just does solve my problem. Yep. Yep. With, with only one search engine and uh, there are more but we only care about one, does that start to change uh, all verticals, I mean, do all verticals start to get compressed into just the leaders and then like a whole bunch of hopefuls? If Amazon has their way, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's, a certain, there's a certain simplicity on the, not only the consumer experience that you're describing, but the back end. If we're gonna provide uh, this seamless experience, it's a whole lot easier if we just own it all end to end. So Amazon <laughs> adds category after category after category. I, that's probably going to be an inexorable conflict over the next 15 years as it keeps getting simpler and simpler from the consumer's perspective, but also more and more combined, uh, monopolistic. I, I don't know that we can avoid that trend. Um, I, would just, I would just say that one of the cool opportunities in there is to look for, to be the brand that runs counter to that trend. That, that says, okay, we get that this is a thing, it's economically a thing, sociologically a thing, fine, that it trends towards homogenization. We're gonna choose to just step to the side of that. You know, an example of that is something as bizarre as obstacle course racing, where people pay money to jump through fire and be electrocuted. That's not, that's not simple, that's right. not smooth. Right. Right. <laughs> that's very deliberately counter to that trend, and it's the fastest growing, largest, consumer participation sport in the world. Yeah, 
right? Yes. Wow. Ten times more people ran one of those races last year than ran either a half marathon or a marathon. Ten times <laughs> as many. So there's something about us. We like trends, but we're not stuck in them. We want to break them occasionally. One of the things that I think is going to be really interesting is we talk about consistency in the brand, and we're talking about these like tiny little moments across every interaction that could be. Um, it's going to be really hard to be consistent as a brand when you've got all of these distributed messages and distributed ways to communicate. And I think consumers are going to pick up on that. I think there's a, there's a, we've, we've heard about authenticity the last two days a lot. How are you an authentic brand if you can't be consistent across all of these distributed communications? Yeah, yeah. If, if we push out to a world where we have things embedded in us, or we have uh, kind of optic overlays, or I guess even glasses. Let's, you know, let's take the glasses. There's a really awesome demo over there of, of the virtual reality. Does that change this? You know, if, if, if I don't have a device where I can have choice, where you know, it's kind of just given to me, and, and, and maybe that choice is made ahead of me, do the Amazons of the world win because they are the dominant one? Or how, how, how does that work? Or how does that change anything? And how, you know, does human psychology come into this as well? Um, yes. It absolutely, all of this, by the way, is human psychology. There's nothing that technology is doing to us. We are adapting to it, but we're, we're still the actors. Um, and so the answer is we will negotiate that with whatever tools or uh, resources are placed in our path along the way. And so if the, op if the offer is, hey, we're going to put this on your body or in your body, you keep going there for some reason. <laughs> uh, it, if that's the answer, then we'll negotiate what that means to us. We will actively decide to make that part of the way we live our lives, the way Facebook, or you go back, try to remember the first time you heard of Facebook when it was just a college thing, and you thought, well, that's terrible. What, that's just awful. And now you use it, but you've negotiated it. You've decided, I'm going to use it for this, but not for that. And I'm tempted to use it for that, and sometimes I give in, and sometimes I don't. That's what we do as human beings. So the psychology will ultimately win, but the result will be all of this incorporation of these technologies. And I think there will be a, a response that varies by customer and by type of brand. So if you think about, um, like, I don't want an ingestible for a retail product that I might buy. But if I had a, a medical condition that required me to be compliant with a particular regimen, right. maybe in that case it makes a lot more sense to me from a privacy perspective and just from a healthcare perspective. So I, I think there will be a different response to the different kinds of brands and the different kinds of experiences that you could allow yeah. to be a, a wearable, a, a Oh, what's, what is it when it's An ingestible. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> when it's in you. <laughs> One of the really interesting things about that is, you're right, there are things that, there are brands or experiences that I would want to have data from within me, but there are some that I would never, ever consider that, but, but I might need to give them a little bit of that just to do their thing. And I know you look at data and data privacy all the time. Is... Is that a thing that's ever going to be able to happen? Are, are we ever going to be able to say, I'm willing to share this bit of data with this brand, but not that brand without- For this time, maybe. With, with, with exactly. this time, like, I mean, exactly. that just seems, we would spend all of our time trying to figure out what to do with our data. Like, is that, yeah. is that a foreseeable future? 
Yeah, so I actually do. I think we're still 10, 15 years out from that being really practical. But this is where agents come into play again, right? This is where our intelligent agents and our mediators and, and what some of us in this weird privacy wonk world like to call the algorithm of me. And that is an algorithm that, that is designed for me with my needs in mind, with my values in mind, and it makes decisions about who to share what with. Um, and that's a really, I think it's a really powerful concept. And as I say, I think we're still a decade away from that being practical, um, but I think it's going there. If for no other reason, then in some parts of the world, the regulators are forcing companies to give you everything they know about you. Uh -huh. Do you think that that turns into a place where um, the, the, the algorithm determines when the thing, the experience is right for you based on your values and needs? So I'm thinking that the fascination with um, algorithmic types of decision making for marketing is it can determine when to pitch you a particular marketing offer. Yeah. But sometimes, not giving an offer is actually more consistent with your brand and with the user's needs. Like if I'm an overspender, the last thing I need from my credit card company is an encouragement to spend more. Maybe I have a better feeling about the brand if they actually help me save that's right. instead of spend. I think that's exactly right. And that goes in your algorithm. Yeah. So who, who owns that algorithm? The credit card company or Google? This is, this is part of why I think we're 10 years away from it. Because I think that we have to figure out, um, is, there a, you know, is there a version of a marketing technology company that comes along and says, I can customize your algorithm. Um, I work with all of these marketers. And I can sort of mediate this for you, right? Mm -hmm. There, there happens to be a marketing technology company that has 1.3 trillion versions of a piece of its software on every computer in the world. Adobe. Adobe. It's got Reader, right? Mm. Think about Adobe, Reader, and Acrobat. Mm. 1.3 trillion versions of licenses of, of Reader. Did you get that, guys, back there? <laughs> That's your next business model? I'll tell you, I, 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 this is an awesome opportunity to hang out with you all, but every time I hang out too much with Fatima, get weirded out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to run over to my computer and like turn Delete things all off. the things. Yeah. Right? Says, the, says the guy who wants ingestible. I know. Right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> what? So um, as we've been talking, anybody, anybody have anything, uh, any thoughts or any uh, questions? Uh, the future of stuff? Or do I get to keep asking all the questions? We got one right here in the middle. Amazon has gone from the world of, you know, dominating online and now is shifting to the physical retail world with Amazon Go and Click and Collect. Sort of jam on the future of that. Mm. What, is that what does that mean for us? That pendulum of swinging from a digital world back to a physical world and, and does that go anywhere else? Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, 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 I would say that we have thought a lot about this in this climate as a climate that we call the, the post-digital climate. So not intending that to sound too apocalyptic, just intending it more to be like, we are at a point where the experiences a, a, a consumer has are no longer bounded by a definition. It's not like, I, now I will go online. Now I will have a digital experience. It's that everything has components 
of both. You have a physical experience that is made very digital because you have a smart device that's with you that's helping you navigate through a physical experience. You have you know, the, the blend of um, augmented or virtual reality that is bringing digital into a physical experience and perhaps making it more real. You have, I just was in uh, Las Vegas a few weeks ago and I went to the Michael Jackson Cirque du Soleil show where Michael Jackson performed as an avatar you know, in the show. Um, and likewise, your digital experiences are very physical in nature. So I think, I, I, I just think we're at this point where everybody to be successful has to blend all of that stuff together because we as consumers have an expectation that there is no, there is no difference between a physical and a digital interaction. I wanna argue something, and I'm gonna argue with myself uh, because I am, uh, my sort of anthropological roots tell me there is something very primal about the physical. Obviously, we have all these nerves designed to help us interact with the physical world, and I know that. So that's one part of me, and, and it suggests, yeah, in the post-digital world, physical is integral, it's very important. On the other hand, we know that most of what you're perceiving right now isn't actually coming from your senses. It's coming from your brain's own prediction of what you're supposed to feel. Hmm. And when you can simulate that very effectively, you can basically take it over. We're capable of simulating physical reactions with purely mental activity. And I think virtual reality, as kind of simplistic as it seems right now, go forward 10 years, it's going to be remarkable what we are able to imagine that we are experiencing purely from those stimulated simulations. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, physical's really primal, but you can simulate just about anything. Yeah. Have you, how many of the folks in the room have tried like an HTC Vive or an Oculus Rift? Handful. Okay, my brother was, uh, we, have a, we have a Vive, and there's this archery game, and he was playing this archery game, and at one point he said, my brain doesn't know that there's no arrow there. And it was so visceral for him, and his brain was doing all of the work, but he was having a physical experience. Yeah. So I think, I think your point is right. I think it's, it's gonna get us, um, it's gonna take us some time to get to viability for that stuff. Um, but I think we have to be thinking about it as marketers. Yeah. I, I have thought a lot about this idea of an algorithm of desire. The idea that right now your algorithm mostly plants a behavioral suggestion. Mm -hmm. Like we are giving you some sort of incentive to take an action that we would like you to do. But what if your algorithm planted a desire like we know enough about the kinds of things that you like to think about yeah. that we're gonna inception style, yep. plant, yep. A, plant an idea in your brain to make you want to, to feel a certain way that will lead to a, a product purchase. Um, and I think that's quite doable based yes. on the machine learning and the possibility of data. Quite doable, science. like now-ish? Yeah. Like, like an algorithm works today to make you want, you know, to encourage a, a behavioral outcome. This would just be finding the motivation behind the behavioral outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've been doing psychological priming for years yeah. as marketers, right, yeah. and that advertising. And now we're just talking about how do we walk that back in a very personal way, right. um, which is a fascinating idea. But here's why I think it won't work. It's not going to be measurable enough for most marketers. Mm. How do you measure the outcome of social, of, of priming desire? Like that? Uh. Yeah. Mm. So one more question right here. Uh, you kind of sort of preempted something of what I wanted to ask is, uh, 
the same way that the excess of information and the speed of information has turned us into goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there any concern that these increased immersive experiences, VR, AR, what have you, uh, may make it more difficult to sort of get into people's heads. Uh, I mean, we've seen the popularity of podcasts which require you to sort of imagine something in your head, but as we make more and more immersive experiences, it, will it be possible to sort of plant that idea in people's heads? Uh, or, you know, are, are we gonna become just complete immersive campaigns and unless you taste it, feel it, there's no point in selling it. Yeah. Hmm. I, so, I, on the one hand, I want to say um, no. We're not going to be in a situation where we become just these experienced uh, canvases that marketers or others can just drop fully formed paintings or experiences into our minds. Although virtual reality will get to the point where it can do that for you. But I guess, I guess my my fundamental perception of human psychology is that we're never content to only receive. There's something about what's going on up here that constantly wants to propose alternatives to what we're perceiving. Um, and and, and that's, that's why we argue, that's why we disagree, that's, what we're, that's why we change our own minds. So even if we were in this position where the, you know, literacy today means reading, maybe in a few years it'll mean learning how to navigate virtual spaces, but even in that environment, there will still be critical interpretation of virtual experience. And, and that might actually be, that might become socially cool to be someone who can critically contribute to the interpretation. I'm getting a little sociological on us here, sorry. But, but I think what I'm, the, the message for brands is you are never gonna be in a position where you just get to drop the idea fully formed in someone's head and have them go, okay, there it is, thank you. So if, if we're not gonna be able to drop a fully formed concept, there'll be parts, pieces and parts that we have to formulate together. Those pieces and parts today are, are, are targeted at cohorts and groups of people and we're getting more and more hyper-personalized, like hyper-personalized down to the, the, to the individual person, but then to, to the, the person in the, the moment. moment, exactly. Yeah. How far does that go? Like, what granularity do we get to ultimately? How big's, how big's a moment? Oh, God. Yes, I won, right? stumped you all. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I think is interesting is we, we talk, so I'm, I'm gonna take a bit of a thing with hyper-personalization. There is no such thing. It's personal or it's not, right? Like, there's a person. So I think um, that the idea of the one-to- moment really resonates with me because it's not about the person. It's about what their context is, what they're experiencing in that, in that very moment. Um, I think we can get pretty darn close to it because um, I think people actually kind of want that. Yep. And so to the extent that um, we can deliver the, the thing that somebody needs or wants or desires, whether that's an image or a, something to eat or just a thought or an answer to a question. Um, I think because we mostly want that, um, it, it will happen, it will, it will get built. I'd go back though to the idea that, um, that, that that's gonna be a very different experience in different contexts for different brands and different people. Like, sometimes I might want an interaction at every possible moment to navigate me to a decision that I'm unfamiliar with or I need a lot of guidance for. Right. Sometimes I might actually want you to um, 
step out of the decision in order to allow me to have not as much fatigue. Right. Like sometimes I, I don't want to have to process through an interaction that happens in 17 different stages of my decision making. Right. Right. It's like that feeling when you've text messaged too much and you just got to like, you just put the phone down because you're sort of losing track of the conversation. So I, I, think, I think that's part of this too, is understanding that sometimes hyper-personalization means having no interaction at all at certain yeah. stages along the way, that that is a deliberate personalized decision to make yeah. to allow the, the, the brain to exhale to not have to rationally move through the decision process. Yeah. Yeah. That sometimes you need to uh, uh, like unflex the muscle a yeah. little bit. Yeah. One of the things though that I wanna ask in this context of what you're both saying is how do we imagine that personalization or choice to not personalize? Who's the actor? Who's doing the doing? Is it me uh, you know, contributing to my algorithm which then respects me when I wanna be talked to and not wanna be talked to? Am I, am I the actor? Is it a brand? Is the brand the actor? And it rests like a little angel on my shoulder that's saying, hey, I'm here to tell you something that you want to hear right now because I know you really well. And I'm here to be quiet right now because I know you really well. Or I, I sometimes like to imagine sort of a Greek chorus resting on my shoulder. <laughs> and I've got multiple voices because I have multiple voices in my own head. Why wouldn't I want multiple voices talking to me and maybe even talking to each other with me listening? Like, I think we ought to tell him this. And I'm, th and I'm hearing Did the other James one say, say he hears I do hear voices. <laughs> I want to hear voices anyway. But I, I, I want to have maybe the, the different agents that I've given permission to contribute to my life, the opportunity to talk to each other while I listen yeah. so that I can kind of think about, yeah, you have a good point there. No, you have a good point there too. And then I get to make the decision. So I don't know it's about being perfectly aligned with what I need so you give me exactly what I need as much as it is being ready to, there I go again, co-construct with yeah. me that moment. One, one of those might be Agent Smith though. And you know, Agent <laughs> yeah. Smith gets in really messes things up. Sorry. All right, we got one more over here. Hey, so knowing that we live in a world that kind of history repeats itself and trends come back, do you see any marketing tactics, trends, or even channels that have the potential to come back? Hmm. Hmm. I, I'm going to say um, like the humanity in, in marketing, actually. Um, and, and I think well, I was having a conversation with somebody about retail um, and how, you know, you're, you walk into a store and I, I live in a very rural community, and we have a hardware store. My hardware store owner knows me by name. It's an Ace Hardware, but they know me by name. They know what chicken feed I buy. They know this stuff about me, which is really, really hard to replace that interaction. So I actually think you know we bring the humanity back to marketing and advertising a little bit. We were just talking about this yesterday in light of some research that James is finishing around uh, the decline of advertising as we know it. And one of the discussion points that came up with the group we were chatting with is that, that there might be a return to traditional advertising to allow a, a better foundation of some new brands. So it's this, it's this notion of I'm deliberately investing in a physical asset to show that I'm not a fly-by-night type of brand. Um, and the example that comes to mind for me is Casper, you know, the, the mattress company. So very different business model around buying a mattress, buying out of home ads, specifically to say, like, we're legit, we're, we're real, you're we not gonna presence. get it, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna get an empty box from us. And so that's kind of interesting too, this return to the traditional ad as a way to show that you are responsible and not just a, a sort of digital 
flash in the pan. <laughs> you know, I wonder about, um, as we, you know, as we think about sort of measurability, to bring it back to the kind of measurability of marketing, as we think about stuff becoming less measurable because we'll be dropping ideas or whatever, um, are we more okay with mass advertising again? Are we, do we move away from this idea that I must be able to commit an ROI to every impression? Hmm. The return of TV. Yeah. <laughs> got one up here. Or back there, yes. Actually, kind of on that point, like, aren't we already there? So my question, our statement kind of goes back to being able to drop a brand into any moment. Like with Snapchat, you have people bra literally branding themselves with like Taco Bell and mm -hmm. having them like have that, the taco face and the different filters and then sharing that one-to-one -one with people within their network, but then at mass scale, because you have three million people doing this, mm. like, aren't we already there where brands are dropping that in a contextually relevant way that is personal and one-to-one, -one, but granted not measurable because it's video and it's ephemeral and it's, it's that moment marketing. Mm -hmm. So what's next? It's mm -hmm. <laughs> a great observation. I don't know where to go from there other than thank you. <laughs> so well said. And that's one of the things about about these great marketing executions that are occurring today is that you don't know about them. In the 70s, we all knew plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief. Yes, thank you. We all knew that. Today, you can say millions of people are doing this thing and the rest of the millions aren't even aware. It's like not even a conscious thing until it gets written up you know, in the Atlantic and someone says, these kids are doing this crazy thing. So I think there's something about that that's missing. So you're right, we're still seeing this ability to trigger in these contextual moments this great richness, but at the same time, other people aren't aware of it. And it, I don't know that that's a, a bug or a feature, but it's certainly part of the landscape. I wonder too if, if there's something about the orchestration of the moments. So right now it feels a lot like moments that just happen that kind of get plopped in and, and people do or don't participate in the moment. But it's not, it's not like an orchestrated experience for me, where in my decision to plan for the holidays, I had this Hershey experience and that led me to do something planful. So I, I, I think it might just be something around like organization of those moments mm. to be more deliberate from a brand's goals, but also from the consumer's goals, that it's, it's not ad hoc in the way that it feels today. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. You got less. One more right here, yes. So as, you, as we think about uh, where all of this data is going, these experiences are going, as we start you know, eating pills <laughs> that are going <laughs> to give us brand desires. The red pill. Yeah. Yes. What, what, role, what role do you think uh, regulators are going to play, and are they equipped to to deal with that. Fatima. <laughs> we all look I in one place. Um, so um, I think it, this is a big cultural question, right? Um, I think that uh, depending on your geography, your, your country's cultural background and baggage, um, there are different things that regulators and different roles that regulators play. Um, unfortunately, regulators rarely understand the technology that they regulate. And we are seeing evidence of that in Europe where they've passed these pretty draconian privacy laws and don't understand that in fact it's going to make the internet fairly unnavigable for a lot of people. So um, when it comes to the role of regulators, I would much prefer to see um, 
us self-regulate. Um, brands and industries say, this is how we're going to play, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to co-create those things with our customers. Are you okay with us doing this? How do you feel about this? Give us more data and we'll personalize your algorithm for you because you trust us. Um, I, I would prefer to see it go down that path. Unfortunately, we don't have a great track record of that. So regulators will inevitably land um, and they will, they will probably um, stifle a little bit of innovation for a while. And, and you talk about how that, how things are marketed to us. As we get things like self-driving cars or autonomous things that do things for us, do we market to those things? Like, like, do we have to regulate how we market to the car so that when it drives me to work, it doesn't always drive me by the same Starbucks? <laughs> just in case I want to stop in and get one. You know, I, I believe that you know, as, we, as we market to machines, yeah. things change as well. Right. So we are out of time, but I really, really appreciate thank all of you here, and I really appreciate all of you sticking around. Um, thank you so much. Your customers are changing rapidly and dramatically. Are you keeping pace? Join Forrester's analysts and over 500 marketing leaders at Consumer Marketing 2018 in New York on April 5th and 6th to hear the trends and challenges that you will face in the coming year. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit forcom slash Consumer Marketing 2018. That's forr.com slash Consumer Marketing 2018. Thanks for listening.